0: You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, The King is in the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Open your Bibles to a Second Samuel, would you? Chapter 19. And while you're doing that, I want to lay some groundwork for what we're going to see today. Let me do it via the Marshall Plan of 1948. In fact, um, some in the military and in our government refer to 1948 as Year Zero. Do you know that? It's when the rebuilding efforts in Asia and Europe began because so much devastation had occurred from World War II. Now remember, this is on the heels of victory, and yet, though victory had occurred, there was a lot left to do to see restoration actually fully be experienced. Just some data for you. Um, historians estimate that in Yugoslavia alone, of course it was then Yugoslavia, there were 300,000 orphaned children beginning in 1948, that part of the Marshall Plan. And that was just then Yugoslavia, not counting the other European areas that were so affected by the war. They estimate that between the years of 1945 and 1948, two million German women per year had abortions because there was so much rape and sexual immorality during the war, from this aftermath and the mistreatment and ravaging of women. And so there was 70 um, percent of German homes were destroyed. So there was homelessness, there was massive children issues, there was uh, food issues, agricultural concerns. It was said that in the Netherlands, uh, people were eating tulips. You ought to research the Marshall Plan and why we invested $13 billion, which today is the equivalent of $135 billion, just to see the victory that was won actually begin to to play out in restoration, economically, militarily, globally, nationally, relationally. That's a long, hard road. It was a four-year plan. It's called the Marshall Plan. As I read through that, and I read through this week's text, which is pretty lengthy, three chapters, it hit me that even when there's victory, the road to conquering division, the road to to seeing restoration happen is long and arduous, isn't it? I mean, this is true in a marriage. You may have an argument or you may have an immoral affair. You may have something that happens on a spectrum of difficult to incredibly impossible. But when the Lord intervenes and reconciles that, you may be reconciled in a moment, but the restoration from that often takes a lot longer. Longer, doesn't it? You have to rebuild trust. You're working through uh, issues. You're changing habits. It's true in friendships when there's been offense and things happen that are wrong. We know in our minds, mentally, yes, things are right. There's forgiveness, but then it takes weeks, months, sometimes years to, to rebuild those friendships. So, do you see what I'm saying, guys? That, that even when there's victory, restoration is often a long and arduous road that's exactly what we see in these chapters in 2 Samuel chapter 19 where david is still king we saw that at the end of chapter uh, at the end of verse 8 chapter 19 he's sitting in the gate absalom has been killed in some sense it's like it's supposed to be this is god's will it has been done and yet the nation's divided david's broken the road ahead is not going to be easy. So what does David do? How does restoration occur? We're going to see that this morning in these three chapters. What I want to do is I want to walk you through, just in a brief fashion, the three chapters by asking you to see the story with me. We'll just kind of chronologically follow the text. But then I want to kind of see behind the story, it may be, What's going on? And then I want to see beyond the story. Can we do that together? Your Bibles are open. Let's take a look, can we? Second Samuel chapter 19. Let's see the story. And the main word here would be restoration. Let me walk you through, I think, five acts, we'll call it. Each act may have a word or, or something like that that might characterize it. Just kind of take some notes with me. Beginning in verse 9, you can even pick up so quickly that there is division and arguments already. Even though the king's in the gate... As mentioned in verse 8, even though he's still now reigning, the people are fleeing to their homes. They're arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, verse 9 says. And they're saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. That's speaking of the past. And now he has fled out of the land of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Here's the men of Israel asking Okay, this is just not a good situation, and we should get David back to Jerusalem. David hears of this, and so he sends a message to Zadok and Abiathar. He says to say to the elders of Judah, he specifically points out that he'd like for the religious and the, uh, the priests there of Judah, where he's from, by the way, these southern tribes... Say, so why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? So he's hearing from the, from the ten northern tribes, we'll call it. He sends word back to his specific tribe, that area, and he says, hey, guys, don't be last to this. You're my brothers. You're my bone and my flesh. Why should you then be last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, are, are you not my bone, my flesh? God do so more to me and also if you're not commander of my army. So he's, he's really appealing to his flesh and blood here Bring me back, and he sways the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, saying, Yes, come on back, return, both you and all your servants. And so the king came back to the Jordan. Remember, he had crossed the Jordan fleeing from Absalom. He came back across the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. That's just the, the lower half of the tribes, we'll call it. Well, skip over to 41 for a moment, because the the upper half of the tribes hear about this, and they're a little upset. So verse 41 kind of relays the rest of the story. Israel, their men, they came to the king and said, hey, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with them? Like, hey, we're part of this too. Don't, Don't you see the division? So even though victory had been won, even though good things had happened, There's a long road ahead to keep the nation united. David's got a mess on his hands. They're arguing. They're differing. Here they are, wondering who's going to be responsible to bring the king back to Jerusalem. The men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Here's why we were first at it, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? In other words, he's flesh and blood to us, and he sent us word through the priests. Have we eaten all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? They're simply saying there, our relationship is not one of of an official one. It's more of a familial one. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, yeah, but we've got ten shares in the king. So now they're arguing numerically, hey, we've got more than you've got. (laughs) Hmm. They said, why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back the king? That goes back to verse 9 and 10. It was their idea to bring him back. But then the men of Judah jumped in and brought him back. And they're saying, hey, we've got more than you've got. And we thought of it first. Nah, 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 nah. So regardless of which side you take in this, my point is not to figure out was Judah right or Israel right. My point is to say David is the king. The victory's won. And yet, man, there's some division happening. Are you with me? David's got a got a mess here. He's got to work towards unity. He's got to bring the people together. In the middle of those two conversations, interesting things happen. Let's look back at verse 16. I wanted you to kind of see those two in contrast. Somewhere between those two conversations, David extends forgiveness to three people. First of all, Shammai in verse 16 of chapter 19. Do you see that? Shammai is the one back in chapter 16 who cursed David. Shammai was sure that Absalom was going to win. He'd be the next king, and so he put a curse on David. And as David's walking out of Jerusalem, fleeing up the Mount of Olives, he's throwing rocks at him. He's cursing him. Remember one of David's commanders said, you should kill that man. And David says, maybe the Lord's told him to do it. He said, let's just let the Lord handle this. It was one of David's most humbling moments. Now Shammai realizes, I, I misjudged who's going to win the battle. I don't want the king to take me out. So he comes and he falls for the king. Says, hey, king, uh, about what I said, can we talk about that? And David graciously does not execute him. When his officers are saying, take this guy out, David extends forgiveness. Next in line is Mephibosheth. We also know him as what? Anybody remember? Phibs. That's our name for Mephibosheth. You're right. Phibs comes and actually corrects a lie that was told about him. If you notice he'll come, he's he's probably walked about 20 miles. He's lame in his feet, so I don't know how he did that totally, but he's very unkempt. Um, And what happened was, if you recall, his servant Ziba had lied about him. He made David think earlier that Mephibosheth was going to stay in Jerusalem because when Absalom won, he would then finally get revenge on David. But that wasn't true. Actually... Ziba the, the servant uh, didn't help Mephibosheth get out of Jerusalem, so he's left there. But somehow he walked these miles, finds David, and five times I think he does not use David's name. He uses the phrase my lord, my king. He calls himself a slave. In response, David actually changes the or- earlier decision in which he had given everything to Ziba, and he said, you know what Phibs? We'll split the land 50-50. So David realized that Phibs had been lied about, that Ziba was really one of the problems. So he extends forgiveness to Shammai. He extends grace to Phibs. And then Barzillai, this Gileadite, uh, this octogenarian type of person, really old, he's been very kind to David during his days running from Absalom. Kind of funded his um, place of staying, and where his food needed, all that kind of stuff. David asks him to go back with him, but he says, "Listen, I'm aged, I'm old, and the truth is, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. That's not really where I'm from. Can I just stay in my home and die here?" And David grants that wish. Instead, he takes his servant. So you find three things here that David just really is very gracious about in the middle of even division. So Judah and Israel are arguing, yet David is showing gracious kindness. Do you see what you see? Kind of see some things happening here. The road to restoration is long and hard. So you have some people arguing, some people fighting, and yet David's trying to balance this and trying to hear and trying to listen. He's um, being gracious. Verse t- chapter 20 then lays out what happens next. It, it appears that while they're arguing, uh, Sheba, who's called a worthless man in, cha- in chapter 20, verse 1, he's kind of had it. So he says, you know what? I'll end the division. I'll just mount another revolt. And so he, he, in some sense, begins to take Absalom's place, but he's not got near the power or the credibility. And so he encourages most of the folks in the northern aspect. Uh, he says, hey, we've got no portion in David, no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Here's more division. Bichri is trying to start another revolt. David, in this case, though, does something very intriguing. He acts promptly. Do you recall back when he was on the run after his sin with Bathsheba, how that sin affected him and caused him to be very passive? We talked about that, right? Here, David, I think, has learned a lesson. He's not passive. He's very proactive. Verse 4, he talks about how he gathered his um, um, generals together. He says, go and find this guy. Let's mount the army. Let's, Let's pursue him. Amasa, however, takes longer than three days to get the armies together, and so David does not wait around to find out if Amasa has traded sides or if he just had a, you know, a bad journey. He's not waiting. He says, you go find him to another man. What happens is Joab is part of that group. Joab runs into Amasa, who's coming back with the army, and Joab, in a, probably in a, in a moment of revenge, stabs Amasa in the, in the gut and kills him. And here's why Amasa had taken Joab's job earlier. David had a demoted Joab, probably for killing Absalom. Joab's probably got a little bit of bitterness about that. So when he meets the army coming back to Jerusalem, like David instructed, while they were delayed, we don't know. He takes out him and says, I'm going to be back the commander again. So you've got a lot of division still. You've got a lot of animosity. We don't know that Amasa was you know, trading sides again. We don't know. He was Absalom's commander, so there was some question there. Regardless, he's dead now. Joab's in charge of the army. They go after Sheba. They come to this city where he's kind of walled up. And they're about to take out the whole city just to get one man. And a a very wise woman speaks up in chapter 20. You'll notice at the beginning about verse 14. um, She calls out in verse 16 and says, Listen, listen. By the way, the word listen is mentioned three times in these few verses. And in this case, I'm glad Joab did that. So this wise woman says, don't destroy the whole town. If you want one person, we'll give him to you. (laughs) And sure enough, as the chapter concludes, they throw his head over the wall and the town is saved. And Sheba, the revolter, is taken out. Which is what David had had tried to accomplish at the beginning. It says that Joab then blew the trumpet in verse 22, which is a sign that uh, we're going to rally and Head back and they disperse from the city of Reman to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now, some commentators and some historians would say this actually is kind of how David's reign ends, and that chapter 21 begins a set of chronicles that actually highlight things that happened during his reign, but it's kind of, I would say, the word maybe not misplaced, but it's kind of placed differently chronologically. That what happens in 21 is really just things that happened in David's reign prior to chapter 20. That really, chapter 20 is kind of the Here's the final officers you see in 23. Here's how his reign concluded. David's an older man. This is how um, things ended at some point in 21 through about 24. It's just some collection of stories. That could be true. I don't know that it matters a whole lot. Some would say, no, 21 still happened at the end of David's reign. I don't know for sure. We're going to continue to win this chapter because I think it shows David's heart for restoration. So even if it was before Absalom's revolt or after in this place... You see David working to keep the nation united. Notice what happens. There was a famine. He seeks the Lord. And the Lord relates to David that basically it's because of Saul's killing of the Gibeonites. You see that in verse 1? There is blood guilt on Saul in his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now this is not recorded in Second or First Samuel. We don't have a record of this event. But David seems to be quite aware of it and doesn't doubt that the Lord uh, has told him this or that it happened. I would say to you, Joshua 9, record for us why this was such a terrible event. Because the Israelites, under Joshua's rule, had made a treaty with the Gibeonites that that they would not destroy them. Now, it was a treaty made kind of in some trickery. So we're not going to debate in this message of that treaty or not. Just know this, Israel had made a promise. We're not going to kill the Gibeonites, but Saul actually did. At some point in his reign, he murdered the Gibeonites. Well, this is now coming back to haunt David and his reign and the Israelites. And so the men of uh, Gibeah here, they say, we want things to be made right. David says, what do you want? You see that in verse 4, right? What do you say that I shall do for you? Well, they want blood for blood. As you read the chapter, uh, it's not money they want. It's not gold or silver. They want a life for a life. And so they're asking for Saul's sons. And so David's in a, in a bind here. What does he do? He doesn't choose Mephibosheth, but he does choose seven other sons of Saul. And he says, you can execute these guys for the sin that we committed. And that's a hard one to reconcile. Hopefully you're sitting there thinking, Todd, how do we deal with that? Here's probably the best way to understand that. More than likely, and there's no proof of this in the text, so we are operating from speculation, but more than likely, Saul's sons were involved in the massacre of the Gibeonites. So actually, from a legal point of view, they were probably responsible. And I would say Mephibosheth wasn't because he was lame. Now, we don't have proof of this. Just as we don't have the account in Scripture of the massacre, we don't know that for sure that happened. I would venture to say, though, probably Saul and his sons, who were the generals of the army close in contact with their dad's battles were responsible militarily for the massacre. So in some sense, you could say this is actually legal justice because you killed these men. We're now going to require your life. So if you struggle with this text, that that may be one way to to view it and it could be an appropriate way. So David actually punishes on behalf of the Gibeonites, the ones who took the Gibeonites life and broke that treaty and killed those people. Um, one of the moms obviously is remorse over that and so you read about how she reacted and, and then David watches her care for her slain sons and he's moved by that and he gets the bones from Saul and Jonathan as well as the bones of those slain sons and he puts them all together and makes a memorial for Saul. I think that's intriguing that David, has, somehow David always maintains a humble respect of Saul, his greatest enemy. Now, I don't can't piece every piece together perfectly. And I know David has moments where, um, like, this had to be very difficult. But I'm always amazed at how David's humility was really strong in regards to his predecessor. So as the stories end, there's a lot of war. This is one of the indications that perhaps this did happen before the, um, the days of Absalom. E- either way, there's much war. His days of bloodshed are not over yet, but he's older In fact, he's so old that he's about to get killed in verses, you know, 16, 17 of chapter 21. The sense of this text is like you've met a giant, David, and the days of Goliath are gone. You're not the young shepherd boy. You're the old man, and you're going down on this one. But um, Abishai steps in and kills the Philistine who had attacked David. What happens from that is they say to David, listen, you're not the young whippersnapper we once knew, and if your lamp goes out, our nation's in trouble. And so they actually ask David to step back from from being the warring general. Now, can, here, I want you to hear this. That's like asking you not to do something that you really like because it's not best in the bigger picture. How would you hear that? I'll tell you how you'd hear it. Not well. I wouldn't hear it well. But you know, there's a point in which, Listen, there's a point at which what's better for the bigger picture must be consider, cons, uh, considered by even those who make up the little parts of that picture. I thought about this this, this week. I mean, look, there's a day coming, and I, I don't know when it is exactly, but I've been thinking about it when me as the preaching pastor here, me as the platform leader, is, will not be the best thing for this church. You don't want to feel like you're holding on to a 65 year old, 70 year old guy. We've got to keep him employed. He's got to have a job. I, mean, I don't want to be an albatross around the church. Now, some of you are getting nervous, like, I'm about to resign. I'm not about to quit. <laughs> I'm just telling you, uh, we want to make sure that we're, that we're training younger guys. Who is the next pastor at First Family? And as far as the platform, we have elders as pastors, but you know what I'm saying. Who's the next lead pastor? How does that look? We can't wait till the last minute and say, oh, Todd's in the hospital this week. He's 67. We should be planning ahead and way ahead. Are you with me? So what does that transition look like? What does it look like for us to think about who's our next guy? And So will it be easy for me to hear you say, hey, Todd, we love you. But hey, we'd like to make a few adjustments in light of the future. It won't be, but I think it'll be the right thing. you with me? I'm not laying groundwork. I'm not trying to send a coded message. I'm just telling you, this had to be hard for a king who was not allowed to build a temple because he was a wartime king. He loved battle. To be told, David, you can't go to battle anymore. You know what he said to him? He said, you're right. And then the remainder of this text really is about the men who sided up next to David and slew the, the giants. That takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? So here in these three chapters, I've just kind of walked you through them chronologically. What we find is David's road to restoration. He had the right perspective about things. He exuded forgiveness and kindness. People around him were aware of situations and had a listening ear. He owned things of the past and tried to make them right and exemplified courage to continue fighting and yet to take his proper role when he knew his days on that way were over. So before I kind of lay out what I think is the essential trait in this, let me just say to you something that we can observe in this text clearly. Though Absalom was dead and victory had been won, What lay ahead for David and Israel was a very hard, long road of restoration. Would you agree with that? I mean, you can see it in these three chapters. Handling the division, dealing with the past, dealing with his own brokenness. All of these things, this was hard. So let's understand something, church. Even though relationally or financially or economically or um, organizationally, you may say, we, we came through something. We won, so to speak. We did the right thing. It's settled. That may be true in some sense, but often the road after that is very long. And it takes hard work to experience true restoration. But it is hard work that is well worth it. What enables that hard work of restoration to pay off? What really, I'll use the word maybe empower. What fuels restoration the hard work of restoration. I'll give you the one trait that I think is woven throughout all of these chapters. I think it's the trait of humility. The ability to, to stay in the low position, so to speak, to have the attitude that that others' interests matters, their interests matter more than yours. That listening is one of the best first things we can do. That extending grace and forgiveness is always a proper action. These all stem from a humble spirit in someone. This too is hard work. It's hard to be humble and admit there's a problem and honestly hear the different perspectives. It's hard to be humble, and, in David's case, to grant amnesty to an enemy to reverse a former decision as the truth was actually revealed, or to let a trusted warrior and friend stay behind. It's hard to be humble and actively address the second attempt at division, which is what David did, and to reject passivity and yet not be proud. It was hard for David to be humble and once again take a low posture, admit he needed guidance and seek the Lord. I think it's hard to be humble and deal with sins of the past. It was hard for David to be humble, admit there's something more important than just his warring ability, to hear the kind advice of others regarding what was best in the bigger picture. This is one of the elements behind this narrative, the need for humility in the middle of the long road of restoration. So can we look at what's behind the story for a bit? In a word, it's humility. That's what's going on here. That's really what's driving the restoration that's taking place in these three chapters. In fact, without going into too much more detail, can I just show you five things based on these chapters that I think humility does? I'll read them rather quickly. We've kind of talked about them already, but just take a snapshot of the screen or write them down. Here are five things that I draw from these chapters that actually humility will will pursue, will attempt. First of all, number one, Humility will acknowledge the painful reality. Now you can fill in what the painful reality is. You can say the painful reality of an affair. The painful reality of bankruptcy. The painful reality of of being fired. The painful reality of moving. The painful reality of death. Fill the blank in, but can we just admit this, that humility enables us to say, hey, something isn't right, as opposed to just... Acting like everything's okay when we know it's not. It takes humility to sit across the table and say to someone, Hey, can we talk about something that we both know exists? And can we do it in a way that maybe will move us towards restoration? I think it's pride that says, let's pretend we're okay. We'll just wear plastic smiles and we'll just go on as if everything's okay. And it's not. It takes humility to come to the table and talk. I think that's one reason, if I could just insert this for a moment, that our nation seems, and I guess is, so divided. It seems like it's impossible to have people who actually oppose each other just come and just try to talk about what's going on. Isn't that sad? Like civil discourse, uh, debate, honest disagreement almost seems impossible in this country. Why? Because we're so stinking proud. We think, I won't go into that. This is not about politics. I just want you to know, humility admits and acknowledges painful realities. It doesn't mean you agree, but you can share and sympathize with people. That's one of the ways we exhibit humility. David did this. He was listening to Judah and Israel. He heard Shammai. He heard... um, Mephibosheth, he's listening to Barzillai. Like, man, these are all perspective. These are all people with stories. Like, and I think just listening, acknowledging, there's some painful reality in this victory we won from my own son. So just just realize this is one of the things humility does. It allows you to 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 have perspective. Second thing humility does, at least, is it, it, it addresses people with grace and kindness. In other words, it extends forgiveness. We teach our kids this at home. You can ask them, they'll say they've heard this quote for years. We say this a lot. It's always right to be polite. You know why? Because it is. You may disagree with them. Uh, You actually may may have uh, been hurt by them. There can be a number of issues, but it's always right to be polite. It's always correct to be graceful and kind. That's what humility empowers and does. Here's something else humility at least we'll do. It aims to hear wise counsel and solve core issues. I know the chapter I know that chapter 20 is a difficult chapter to read about an army going after a man and then about to destroy the city but the city gives him up by chopping his head off and throwing it over the wall. It's a hard chapter to read. What I think is interesting about that chapter is this though. It shows David doing something he didn't do before. David is dealing with a core issue and not taking a long road around it. Remember Absalom? He didn't deal with it, did he? For whatever reason, he was very passive. Here though, he hears of the the revolt starting and he deals with it. And in fact, when the lady in the city speaks to Joab, I think it's very good that Joab listened. And she says, you're not really here to destroy the whole town. You just want one person. Let's see if we can work that out. You know, Proverbs says this, that when you, um, uh, speaking of like gossip and 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 secrets. I think that Solomon talks about how if you can just take out the the one problem, you'll solve the other problems. Don't try to, you know, maybe take a massive um, approach to the whole thing. Try to figure out what the real problem is, the core issue and deal with that, and you'll probably solve things around it. This is what David did in chapter 20. He found the one person who was causing the revolt, Sheba, and he said, "Let's deal with that person." And that takes humility to to be able to focus in when you probably have a lot of things weighing on your emotions. This is how humility operates. We hear wise counsel and we solve core issues. We're aware of that. Another thing humility does. It accepts responsibility for past sins. David owned what happened under, Joshua's, under Saul's uh, reign. And he made things right. Something else humility does, lastly here, is humility acts selflessly for the bigger picture. David knew that his role as the warring king needed to be changed and adjusted. And so he heard the the wisdom of his good friends, as difficult as that was, and he made adjustments. So we begin to realize something. That the way through division and to restoration begins and ends with humility. All those five things that we know humility does... The things we see in these chapters, they're all empowered, kind of driven by humility. So we begin to see something here. Here's kind of our take-home truth. Here's kind of our big idea. Here's the, the sermon in a sentence. That the way through division and to restoration begins and ends with humility. Would you say that with me? Say it together. Here we go. Ready? The way through division and to restoration begins and ends with humility. This is why, and I've said this to you before, but I'm going to repeat it again for those who are new. Listen very carefully. Ears wide open. In the Bible, we're always told to humble ourselves. Double check me on this. I'd love to have your feedback. I don't think there's a single reference to God humbling us except when he has to do it in judgment. He always says to us, humble yourselves first. Take the blanket of humility. Posture yourself in the low position so that I don't have to do that. It's one of those few traits. It's one of those few, I'll even call it, call it fruits, and that we actually say, okay, I'm going to wear this. I'm going to take this posture. I'm going to actively begin to pursue this. And if you're dealing with situations where restoration's needed, Where there may have been a victory where you've kind of got things settled in one sense, maybe mentally, verbally, but you're like, man, how in the world do we move forward? Here's the very first trait you've got to begin to exemplify. It begins and ends the whole process, and that is you have to figure out what's the best way to show humility. Because restoration begins and ends with humility. This is what's behind the story. Now, I know that's hard to hear. It's difficult. So let me just mention three things to you. Three rejoicing reminders. Can I do that? I'll just say them to you quickly. First of all, God does not abandon us when we follow his call to put the pieces back together. Man, can we just smile and let that massage our heart? I know the times when Jewel and I have had to make amends Regardless of who is at fault, it's usually me. But on the rare occasion, it's been her. (laughs) We both have stared at that chasm like, how do we get back from this? And you know what? We have more than once looked each other in the eye and said, you know what? We're not alone. Like, we feel really wicked and sinful in those moments. Like, man, a pastor, a pastor's wife, church member. But, man, we've really just blew this. And yet, God has not forsaken us. He's with her. He's with me. And we can cross this chasm. Look in the face of your friend at your lighthouse. Look in the face of your teenager, your child. When you're putting the pieces back together, you are not alone. God will not abandon you. I think about how broken David must have been, how much credibility he probably had lost. How big things looked, and yet God was with him. Aren't you thankful that God has not abandoned us in the middle of our brokenness? That's a rejoicing reminder. Here's another one for you that you can restore yourself and other people. You can pursue restoration in the middle of personal brokenness, you don't have to wait till you're all perfect. To say, okay, I got Mac together, can we talk now? I doubt any of us would ever talk. (laughs) Are you with me? It's actually in the middle of our brokenness that perhaps humility is best expressed. So can I encourage you, if you're trying to wait until you have it all together and can make the best impression, put forth the best image, you're probably waiting for the wrong time. The best time is in the middle of your brokenness to exemplify humility and simply say, can we figure out a way forward? I don't like what's happening. I don't have an answer. I don't even know exactly maybe all that happened or will happen, but I want to work this out. In the middle of your brokenness, restoration can still occur. Here's another rejoicing reminder for you real quickly. The scars are the signs of healing. Aren't you glad about that? This is why I maintain staying in one church as long as you can is a good idea. Because there's no way you can stay in one church for a long time and not have some scars from relational issues. All right? You're going to have them. You get more than about three people together, and there's going to be conflict at some point. You put 800 people together in two campuses with a number of church plants. That's a lot of opinions in the kitchen. Are you with me? That's a lot of people cooking some stew. And if everyone's always checking out when when it doesn't taste like they think it should taste, that's just probably, this doesn't seem like that's the the right scenario. Instead, we've got to figure out, okay, how can we reconcile and restore each other? How can we stay together and be right and yet let this, admit this happened? I think as things heal, they go from an open wound to a scar. It's a beautiful sign that there's healing and that it tells a story for God's glory. I mean, some of you right now could point to a scar and say, I remember what happened there. I was riding a skateboard and I fell down the hill and, you know, you could, it could be any number of accidents. I was fishing or swimming or I was hiking. or. But when they heal, when the scars heal, you remember what happened, but it doesn't hold you back. Amen? It just tells a story and you, often you'll smile about it and say, man, I thought it was over at that point. But you know what? God brought me through it. And you look back with really some sense of like, wow, God is powerful. It tells a story for his glory. That's why I say restoration and reconciliation should always be aimed at saying, how can we figure out a way forward? So we've some scars and we're done, but if we can stick together, those scars will tell a beautiful story of the power of God. It's a rejoicing reminder. Lest you think this message is all about you and me and our restoration and our reconciliation and the need for humility in it, It's not. Let me end by asking to look beyond the story for a moment, can I? Because none of this would be possible if we didn't understand that Christ actually humbled himself to bring reconciliation and restoration to us. You see, really, what David is doing here in this temporary restoration is just a picture of what Christ eventually did in ultimate restoration. David solved the nation's problems to some degree. He hung in there He he made progress. He humbled himself. Yes, those things helped the the nation. Historically, in 1,000 B.C., this was important. But what really mattered was 1,000 years later, when Christ would come and look deeper into our lives and say, I can restore you and reconcile you to God. I can solve your eternal predicament. And how did Jesus do that? The quintessential trait... That he modeled was humility. Philippians chapter 2. Look with me at these verses here. I'll be on the screen behind me. Look how Jesus does this so much better than even David. And he tells us to have this mind on ourselves. The mind of Christ who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And was born in the likeness of men. Watch this next phrase. And being found in human form, say it with me, he humbled himself. What's the very first thing the second person of the Trinity did to solve our, our division with God, to reconcile us to our Father? What's the very first thing Jesus did? He humbled himself. Humility drives Reconciliation. When Jesus went to the cross, when he satisfactorily and sufficiently and eternally reconciled God's people to God, it had an effect that I want to make sure you understand. It it allows us now to do the very same thing, to live in a reconciled fashion. In fact, this is actually what Jesus prayed in John 17. I've been stunned by this verse the last couple of weeks, especially this week. And thinking about Jesus' work of restoration, bringing us to the Father and and reconciling us. But it wasn't like, okay, well, that's all I was trying to accomplish. He accomplished that for sure, right? But look how he says this should affect us. John 17, here's his prayer. He says, I pray not just for these only, speaking of those disciples, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, people in Ankeny, Iowa. Your name's in there. God God the Son is praying at this point for all those who will believe, and he prays this, that they may be, say it with me, one. No division, but a unified people. Yes, there will be division, there will be times where we need restoration, but God's praying that we will actually live as one and it will be the kind of unity that is seen in the Trinity. Just as as you, Father, in me and I in you, There'll be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why did Jesus do the hard and holy work of restoration? Yes, it was for your good, no doubt, your eternal good, but also for the eternal good of those who are watching his people. Because when they look at us, how good the sermons are, how exciting your programs may be, how awesome your worship may be, All of these things, or how good you dress, or what you drive, how many people you pack in your auditorium, really is not what they're asking. I think deep inside what they're wondering is this. Do you get along any better than I get along? Because if you're not any different at that level, if your tribe, so to speak, doesn't interact or relate any differently than my tribe, then what's the difference? You just got a different set of externals. What's really different deep down? What makes you get along with people who are really different than you? How in the world does that happen? And we say, it's Jesus. That's what the world's looking for. And when that doesn't work so well, we must adopt a posture of humility to pursue restoration and reconciliation. Is that hard work? Yes, but that's why I say it's also holy work because we are working for something far bigger than just our own family or even our own immediate church. we're working for God's family to unite and show the world because God loved us so much and restored us through the cross, we can work equally as hard at living in restoration and reconciliation. And it takes humility, yes, but it is hard and holy and possible. So my final question to you is this. Knowing that the story teaches us that restoration is long and arduous and that what's behind it is humility is required and that what's beyond it is that Jesus actually exemplifies this perfectly. Will you follow your Savior and adopt humility in your relationship to others? In fact, then I just ask you a very pointed question. Is there anyone with whom you should adopt a posture of humility in order to make the, the, in order to travel the road of restoration well. Say, Todd, that's hard. You're right, it is. I admit that. Three chapters of hard work here, but it's holy work. Modeled by our Lord, inspired by His Spirit, empowered by the gospel, and it's possible. So I'm going to call you this morning to that kind of posture to seeing that division does not have to be what defines you or us or the body of Christ in general, but rather restoration, reconciliation, unity. And believe me, it doesn't mean you have to agree with every single jot and tittle, every point of someone who's sitting next to you or near you. We can have differences of opinions, but at our core, there has to be the sense of unity around Christ that keeps us rightly related, correctly um, uh, relating to one another, and spirit of grace and kindness. That's what the world looks at and says, wow, the gospel works. So will you pray with me, please, church?